Well, as Eric just said, uh, I should introduce myself. I am Ed Faudry, another of the ruling elders here at Heritage. And a few months back, um, our, our pastor, Todd Gwinnett, said he was going to be on vacation, and I asked if um, I might take that opportunity to bring the word to you this morning, and, and he agreed to that. So let us spend a moment to turn to our New Testament reading, that's 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Second Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were, were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me, please? Father, may your word open to us this morning. May we hear your word. May it sink into our hearts. May your spirit open this as a present, as a gift to us, that we would see the importance of your word and it would work in our lives each day. Lord, we ask that you will do this for us by the Spirit's work and power in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This section of Second Peter, the apostle begins with um, a defense of the gospel, and a defense of the apostles' proclamation of the gospel, his own proclamation, as well as the other apostles. He bases this defense on three comparisons or three contrasts. First of all, it's myths and eyewitnesses to the real events. The second contrast or comparison is experience in Scripture. And the third contrast or uh, our comparison is the will of man and men speaking from God, revealing God's will. He says that he and the other apostles uh, weren't believing and proclaiming cleverly devised myths or fables or made-up stories. Can we stop right here and just, just think about this? Because what Peter is describing is the Roman world. All the religions of Rome saved Judaism at the time and, and Christianity as it was coming into being. Uh, they were fables and myths. I mean, you look at the classic Roman pantheon of gods, uh, Jupiter, Mars, Hercules, and, and all the rest. They were based on, on Greek mythology and had stories that had very little to do with real places and events on the earth. 
Rather, they were an attempt to describe some sort of intelligent agent to the natural phenomena or human desires. It was Apollo who was driving his uh, chariot across the sky, and that was the, the motion of the sun in, the, in, the, in every day. It was Venus who was the source of human love. It was Bacchus, the god of wine and celebration, that explained why people enjoyed festivities. All made up fables. And then there were the mystery religions of the Roman world as well, religions that had secret words of wisdom and power that only the initiates were allowed to hear and usually you had to perform some sort of uh, work and have that evaluated, and then you would give, be given this secret word of explanation or of power. And there were different levels, so you just didn't do that once. You had to keep doing it multiple, multiple times to, to work up to a level 32 or 64 or whatever the, the top level was. And each one of these mystery religions had their own special set of understandings, and you could go from religion to religion to religion and philosophies and get all these secret words, cleverly devise myths designed to deceive. There was this purpose to have this wisdom when all they really did was deceive us and keep us from following the truth. But, but isn't our own age filled with cleverly divide, designed fables? Think of all the competing and contradicting religions in our world today. Think of all the competing philosophies and worldviews that are bombarding us every day. You can't go a day now without hearing about how we must believe this idea or accept that concept or take on this other worldview. And if you don't, then you're a, a, a bigot or a racist or, or some other detestable less-than-human being. Uh, finding a way out of that whirlpool of destruction is critical for us if we want to keep sane. And so the Apostle Peter um, appeals to what he and the other apostles saw and heard. He had the experience of spending three years with Jesus, hearing his teaching to the public, and then later in private, receiving the depths of those teachings from Jesus' own lips. They saw the miracles. And they were given power to perform miracles themselves as Jesus gave them that privilege. They saw his trial and execution. They saw him die on the cross. And then they saw a spear thrust into his side. They knew that he was laid in a tomb. And three days later, they saw him resurrected. And Jesus continued to teach and encouraged them. They saw him lifted up into heaven 40 days after the resurrection, and a mere week later, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit during the festival of Pentecost. This is what they saw and heard, handled and tasted. Yet Peter doesn't appeal to any of those events in this defense. What he appeals to as the capstone of his experience is the event of the transfiguration. This event made an indelible mark on Peter. It stuck with him all the days of his life, so that in this letter, he refers to that as a proof that the gospel is true, that you can stake your life on it. It's an anchor through all the trials and tragedies of life and the promise of future restoration of all good things. 
So here is that first comparison. That of myths and fables to real events attested to by the actual eyewitnesses themselves. Now in a single sentence here, uh, Peter recounts the event of the transfiguration. We, we can go back to Matthew chapter 17, uh, back a few months ago. Uh, Pastor Todd taught on that passage. Um, so we can ex- look at that and expand that. So Peter uh, is taken along with James and John by Jesus up to the top of the mountain. And before the disciples' eyes, Jesus' appearance changes. His face begins to shine bright as, as though the sun itself was behind his face. His clothes, probably dirty from travel, becomes white as light. Moses and Elijah, the two men representing the law and the prophets, are there, suddenly appear and converse with Jesus. Well, of course, this is Peter, so he has to make an inane comment. And then a bright cloud covers the top of the mountain. And the Father's voice rings out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples fall on their faces in terror, but Jesus touches them and bids them rise. They are alone again on the mountaintop. Peter doesn't name this mountain. I find that interesting. Um, we read about Mount Sinai. We, we hear about Mount Zion, and there are other mountains that are named in the text of Scripture, um, but not this mountain. In fact, neither Matthew's account nor Mark's nor Luke's, uh, who talk about this transfiguration, uh, mention what, expressly what mountain this is. So we have to kind of do some other things. Now, there's a church tradition that started several centuries later after these events that said it was Mount Tabor. Now, Mount Tabor lies about uh, six or seven miles west of the town of Nazareth. There are two monasteries located on the top of Mount Tabor. One's an Eastern Orthodox monastery, and another is a Roman Catholic, and they're both following that uh, church tradition from about the 400s. There's a, a geographical problem with taking Mount Tabor as the uh, place of the transfiguration. It's several days' journey from there to arrive in the district of Caesarea Philippi, and that's where Matthew says the disciples were just before the transfiguration. Now, they could make the journey back and forth. It's, it's possible to do that. But I think there's a better choice for what mountain that is, and that's Mount Hermon. It's farther to the north than Mount Tabor, and Mount Hermon represents the northern limit of where Jesus and the disciples traveled as they were presenting the gospel to the nation of Israel. At the southern base of Mount Hermon is the town, Caesarea Philippi. So, better choice geographically, you're right there in the district, there's the central town, you go up to the top of the mountain that's right there, and you come right back down. Makes simple travel, makes the story compact. It's probably... It might be a good idea. Most modern biblical scholars think that Mount Hermon is the right choice. But I think there's another reason why Mount Hermon is the mountain. On that mountain, there's a temple. A temple built by Herod the Great, built to honor Caesar Augustus so that he might be worshipped as a god. I'm sure that in its day was a marvelous temple 
beautiful and artful with a large stone statue of Augustus there so it could be worshipped. You know, the crafty Herod built this temple far to the north of Judea to avoid notice by the Jews in Jerusalem so he wouldn't get lots of criticism from that. But yet he could show himself to be a friend of Rome and the Roman magistrate would say, oh, look, look how that Herod loves Rome. What an honor he bestows on Augustus. Um, let's give Herod all kinds of honors and accolades and let him come to Rome a lot and we can give parades for him. Yes, um, honor him as a worthy Roman. Okay, here's the pride of man. Seeking to be worshipped as a god. Yet our Lord Jesus turns this on its head. Jesus never did anything without having it have deep meaning. I say he chose this mountain, Mount Hermon, specifically because it had this temple to Augustus on it. He went to the very summit, along with his three closest disciples, and displayed his true inherent glory. Here is Jesus, not a man seeking to become God, but God himself, God from all eternity, who became man, not to receive honor and praise, not to come seeking service from others, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's the contrast that Jesus is doing here. That's the contrast that's here. How great it is compared to this useless temple to Augustus where a man could no more become God regardless of how many people would worship him. But here is Jesus, God become man without any aid from us, to be the ransom we all need and are helpless without. Peter also tells us that there was this bright cloud uh, that covered them. Matthew in particular makes this clear. This was no ordinary cloud, no misty atmospheric phenomenon that just happened to buy at the moment. This is the Shekinah cloud of glory that covers them, that informs us that God is present. This is the same cloud that guided the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud by day, and at night the pillar of fire that shone brightly within to give light and warmth and assurance of God's protection and faithfulness. This is the cloud of glory that covered Mount Sinai when God met with Israel and Moses to provide the law to them. The dark cloud of glory and majesty of thunder and lightning and shaking of the ground so that Israel would know that they worshiped one who was all-powerful and not limited to any place on earth as so many of the ancient gods were of man's fables and myths. This is the cloud of glory that filled the newly constructed temple in Jerusalem when King Solomon concluded the, the prayer of dedication. This Shekinah cloud of glory pushed the priests out of that temple, the glory and the majesty were so great. The root word for glory means weight or heaviness. So think of being near the presence of someone so majestic, so filled with power and authority, who carries himself with such gravitas that you move away instinctively, feeling unworthy to be near someone like that. I think that's what the priest and Solomon's temple felt that day, not counting themselves worthy and wanting to give way to the Holy Presence. 
So in this situation of the transfiguration, is this a manifestation of the Holy Spirit to us in this cloud? If so, then we have all three members of the Trinity expressly present at the transfiguration. Just as the Trinity was expressly present at Jesus' baptism, the first phase of his ministry, to show the full agreement within the Godhead of Jesus' ministry, here we have the triune approval of the final phase of Jesus' ministry as he begins to turn now from being at the northern part of Israel to head south down to Jerusalem for his trial, for the crucifixion, for the resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven. And even the Father's words from heaven are the same as at Jesus' baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then he adds the admonishment to Peter and to the others. Listen to him. Just as Jesus needed to prepare his disciples for the horror that they would face at the death of their teacher, the disciples need to hear from the Father himself to pay close attention to what Jesus will tell them. Now, when we come to verse 19, we've got a couple questions we have to ask ourselves. What's Peter really saying here? Verse 19, what does Peter mean by the prophetic word? How do we treat the phrase in the ESV that says, more fully confirmed? Well, look at verse 20, because the two are in parallel. And Peter uses the words, the prophecy of Scripture. So the words of prophecy and the prophecy of Scripture are the same thing. We're talking about the Scriptures. And in the second case, what do we mean by more fully confirmed? We can look at other English translations, and we can go back to the original Greek. And what Peter is saying is this, that Scripture is more firm, more sure, more trustworthy than even that extraordinary experience he had on the mountain of transfiguration. Scripture is more sure, more firm than Peter's experience. Peter needed to understand his experience in light of Scripture, not the other way around. He encourages all of his readers to pay attention pay attention to, to Scripture, to give it heed. Um, he then says that, you, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark or a murky place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Now, Peter's given encouragement here. He's not, this is not a chastisement. He wants to encourage them. He knows that his general readers have been paying attention to Scripture. He wants to encourage them in that. But what about this, this other part of the verse here, this until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart? What's, what's Peter talking about there? At first I thought it might be pertaining to the second coming, but I was unsure of that reasoning. So I, I went to John Calvin, uh, not, not literally, I was reading his commentary. Um, so, so let me give you a brief uh, explanation there of uh, a quote here from, from Calvin. He says, I therefore extend that this darkness mentioned by Peter to the whole course of life and the day dawns, I consider then will shine on us when we see face to face what we now see through a glass darkly, unquote. So what he's saying is this, attend to Scripture all of your life. It's a lamp in a dark place for us until the day 
when you pass from this life to the next, where the fullness of Christ's light will shine on you like the sunrise. We're in the dark now, in this life, in a sinful world. And the only lamp we have is the gospel, which is only found in Scripture. We need to attend to it until we are in heaven and we have the full brightness of Christ shining on us. You see, you may have some friends or relatives or neighbors who will tell you, I don't read the Bible. I go to a church where the pastor tells us about these great visions that God has given directly to him, and that's more exciting to me than just kind of reading these dry words on a page. What does the Apostle Peter tell us? He says, this word is more sure than any experience. So maybe you're having a conversation with someone and then says, um, I hear God's voice speak to me, so I don't need to read the Bible. It's not that important to me. But what does Peter say? He says, this word is more sure than anything you can experience. Someone might say, well, God speaks to me in dreams, so I, I rarely read the Bible because I can understand my dreams a lot better than what I read. It's confusing. That's, that's confusing to me. But what does the apostle tell us? This is more sure, more firm, more trustworthy, more foundational, more complete than anything that we might experience so here's the second comparison between what we experience and what we read in Scripture. Praise God, He gives us experiences. He ordains them for us. And we have these experiences as blessings to us. Yet we need to understand um, that the Bible is foundational. It helps us understand our experiences. We don't use our experiences to understand the Scripture. There have been those who tried to make Scripture conform to what they believed or experienced, and they found ruin instead of blessing. So Peter tells us of a first importance then, that what we should do when we follow in reading and heeding the words of Scripture, that there is no matter, this is no matter of private interpretation. And again, private interpretation, what are we, what are we talking about here? Um, so the original word means literally loosening. So think of it like getting a gift wrap gift for your birthday or Christmas or something. And you have to loosen the ribbon, and loosen the gift wrap paper, and then open the box and receive the gift. So Calvin cautions us, again, to not, quote, arrogantly rely on our own acumen, deeming that sufficient to enable us to understand it, unquote. Peter says, there are mysteries hidden to us and sublime treasures far surpassing our capabilities to understand. So we need the Spirit himself to understand, to open that for us. Peter says that Scripture was given by the Holy Spirit and is therefore the work of the Holy Spirit to explain, to enlighten us, to understand those hidden depths of Scripture. He's not saying that the Bible dropped out of the sky into our hands, but man was involved. Men who were moved by the Holy Spirit 
who employed men's hearts and minds and vocabularies and expressions, and yes, their experiences too, to speak and write down exactly what God wanted to say to us. They were carried along by the Spirit as though they were in a great river carried by the current. Last year, my family and I were um, in St. Louis, and we went to a park there on the western side of town uh, at the edge of the mighty Missouri River. Came right down to the water's edge, and we were just amazed at the amount of debris that was in the river at that time. And it was just carried along. We could see how fast the river was moving because you could see just those whole trees were just being carried along quickly down, downstream. And I thought to myself at the time, I would hate to try to swim in that river right now. Uh, just not even worrying about trying to dodge the limbs and the trees and everything and whatever else was there. But the current was so strong. I, I wouldn't have a choice about where I would go if I got in that river. I mean, I consider myself a decent swimmer, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to swim against that current. The current's going to take me where it wants to go. And I will, I will have no other choice but to go with that. And I think that's what Peter is, is telling us here, that the men who wrote these things down, yes, their own experiences, their vocabularies, the way they expressed themselves, were used by the Spirit to put those words down. But they didn't have a choice about where those were going to go. The Spirit himself directed what God's will was to be written down for us, captured for our benefit, and the Apostle Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally God breathed out of his mouth and breath. One of the experiences that I had uh, as a teenager was that I was uh, in, a, in a class with uh, international students, and I met someone from the Middle East and um, trying to get to know him and him trying to get to know me a little bit. And at first I felt a little bit surprised because he invaded my personal space. He came up right to me almost face to face and started speaking. And whoa, you feel this breath on your face. And then I, then I came to understand that that's how things were done in the Middle East. There was a sense of intimacy and you know, focus right on each other. When you're so close, you can feel the breath from the person speaking on your face. That's how we should approach Scripture. If, if Scripture is God-breathed, we should be into it so that we feel God's breath on our face. That's what he wants us to know. His, these are his words to us. So praise our glorious God who uses man to tell his word to us that he would deign out of his sheer grace to employ us in his work of salvation to teach us all that he would have us know for, us, for our salvation and our growth in Christ. The Spirit gives the word to man. Man writes it down. And we read and we hear the word spoken and the Spirit opens the meaning to us. So here's that third comparison. The will of man had nothing to do with the content of Scripture it was given solely by God. The will of man gives us cleverly devised fables crafted to deceive, but the will of God gives us words that lead to life and godliness. 
Let us praise our loving Father who gives us a place in presenting his words of life to us, in writing down of his word and presenting it forward from generation to generation. This is the word preached in every age. It's God's plan to bring us to heaven and to make us fit to live there. Let's be cautious a little bit. This doesn't mean that the sole process of understanding God's word is that we individually sit down with just the Bible alone and listen to what the Spirit tells us. There is indeed a place for the gathered church to be taught by the Spirit. Down through the ages and across cultures, the Spirit opened the words to faithful men who studied and prepared and uh, who were able to translate the words of the original text and they sought to understand the context and history and culture of the original writers. We have those as a precious resource, those commentaries and interpretations from those generations in other nations, so that our inheritance that one nation, one generation of faithful believers pass on to the next and next and then down to us. So, so why did I spend time to seek out what John Calvin had to say? He lived 400 years ago in a very different culture than ours. Things were very different then. How does that impact us now? Well, it's because someone like John Calvin, faithful in his following after Christ, and chosen and guided by the Spirit, could open the Scriptures and teach faithfully out of them those eternal and enduring truths that apply to all Christians everywhere in every age. And it's not just John Calvin. There are plenty that we have to draw from. We live in a, in a privileged time that we have such a rich heritage to draw from. So our takeaway is this. Scripture is better, more sure, more firm than our experiences. But our experiences are given by God to us as evidence that his word is indeed true and firm and that we can trust the scriptures fully to give to us all that we need for salvation and sanctification. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you that you have given us your word. You have told us that it is more sure, more firm, can be trusted always. Father, thank you that you give us experiences. Help us to be cautious that we always look through your word to understand what our experiences mean. Continue to bless us by your grace to us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ed, for that uh, faithful um, 